Telling the truth is a dangerous business. Podcast and honesty are go hand in hand. You're listening to the Dare Daniel Podcast, where you send us your most sinister movie dares, and we suffer the consequences for your amusement. I'm Corky McDonald, local comedian and smuck. And with me, as always, is Daniel Barnes, film critic for the Sacramento News and Review, and a member of the San Francisco Film Critics Circle. Hi, everyone. As Corky said, on this show, we do your dirty work by watching the most unwatchable movies you can imagine, and then we review and rate them on our unique system. Your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill bad movie is a dare. We give a double dare to the truly atrocious movies, and we reserve a reverse dare for a despised movie that actually turns out to be pretty good. Today on the podcast, we'll be reviewing Elaine May's notorious 1987 box office bomb, Ishtar, starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman as a dopey songwriting duo who unwittingly get involved in Middle Eastern espionage. But before we get started, Daniel's going to tell us about the beer we'll be drinking during the show. Yeah, so I brought another New Glory beer, but instead of the usual hazy IPAs, I brought something a little different in a a film that has was really symbolic of excess. I thought, let's go with an excess of beer. Uh, It's called King Size Satisfies. It is an imperial candy bar stout, an imperial milk stout brewed with chocolate candy bars, a.k.a. Snickers, and lactose, conditioned on cacao nibs, peanut butter, caramel, and vanilla. And to just really up the ante of the excess, to double down on it, I thought, let's pair it with a Snickers bar as well. Oh, yeah, baby. This beer... um, Speaking of excess, 12.5% alcohol by volume. Don't tread lightly. Just go for it, man. It's the 80s. We're never going to die. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wowie, wow. That's like drinking a Snickers injected with... I'm going to chase it with a Snickers, too, baby. um, Cut it into a fine powder and snort it right out. It's probably really good for the podcast to be chewing (laughs) caramel goodness during the podcast. We're being real with you guys, aren't we? Yeah. We're not fake. We ain't fake about this. This film was brought to us by friend of the show and longtime follower Tom Morvolo Riddle. Since you're obviously not opposed to a little history, you've got to consider Ishtar or Heaven's Gate one of these times. Although I'd give the edge to Ishtar just for the singing. I am motherfucking Daniel Barnes synopsis goes like this. Two terrible lounge singers get booked to play a gig in a Moroccan hotel, but somehow become pawns in an international power play between the CIA, the Emir of Ishtar, and the rebels trying to overthrow his regime. So, Corky, as you can see, I'm wearing my written and directed by Elaine May t-shirt that I always proudly wear. And I always get a question from millennials at restaurants and coffee shops asking me who is Elaine May. Are you telling me there's a lot of liberals even in downtown L.A. that are (laughs) abuzz and murmuring? So it's a bad Jacob Wall with a fucking right-wing douchebag joke. I'll stop interrupting. (laughs) Never stop interrupting, Corky. Of course, Elaine May was the May half of the Nichols and May comedy duo. She also wrote and directed three very good films in the 1970s, A New Leaf, The Heartbreak Kid, and Mikey and Nikki. These were really smart, funny, but also very acerbic movies, really born from her background in improv comedy. She was also a prolific screenwriter and script doctor over the following decade. She wrote the script for Heaven Can Wait, The Warren Beatty Vehicle. She wrote uh, two Mike Nichols movies in the 90s. But she also did a lot of, like I said, script doctrine. She did uncredited work on Tootsie and a very key rewrite on Reds. Wow. Warren Beatty's Reds and Tootsie starring Dustin Hoffman. And both actors kind of felt that they owed her something. Uh, And yet their collaboration, 1987's Ishtar, essentially ended her directing career. She never directed again. She's still alive, still still working. But she's basically MIA for for being on screen or behind the uh, camera. 
that essentially ended her career. The movie was conceived as like a modern day Hope Crosby road movie. It was shot on location in Morocco and New York City by the great cinematographer Vittorio Storaro. It was actually produced by Beatty, who apparently clashed with Elaine May and Vittorio Storaro. May and Storaro also clashed. May clashed with a Johnny, who was dating Beatty at the time. No fucking shit. They clashed. <laughs> And everyone basically clashed with everyone. Uh, she had a reputation, much like Beatty or, or Stanley Kubrick, for shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting. She ended up with 108 hours of rushes. Good Lord. But apparently would not share her notes with the editing staff. Three teams of editors each worked on a cut, one apiece for Beatty, Hoffman, and Elaine May. The negative buzz in the press got very loud when the film was delayed. It was originally supposed to come out Christmas 1986. The negative buzz only increased leading up to release. There was a change in studio management at Columbia during the post-production process. The new head, David Putnam, hated Beatty and Hoffman. He was a longtime critic. There were suspicions that he secretly torpedoed the film League Stories of the Crest. It was originally budgeted at $27.5 million, with $12.5 million of that going to the three principals. The budget ended up being $55 million, with probably $20 million more spent on prints and promotions. Uh, like I said, originally intended for a Christmas 1986 release, eventually released on May 15, 1987 on 1,139 screens. It did open at number one, mm-hmm. but it only outgrossed the forgettable horror movie The Gate by less than 100,000. You mean cult classic Canadian horror film The Gate. <laughs> it earned $4.3 million the opening weekend and only grossed a little over $14 million domestically. It does not have great uh, reviews, 34 on Rotten Tomato, 52 on Metacritic, which kind of indicates more apathy than hate. But yeah, that's, that's kind of positive. At the for... time, it got some really bad reviews. Both Siskel and Ebert picked it as their worst movie of the year of 1987. And again, it just became symbolic of not just a box office bomb, but a, of a box office bomb fueled by Hollywood excess and being completely out of touch. Fallout is that Coca-Cola reevaluated entering the movie market. They were uh, running Columbia at the time. Two years later, they sold it to Sony. Like I said, May never directed again. She was nominated for Worst Director and won at the Razzies, although she tied with Norman Mailer for Tough Guys Don't Dance. (laughs) film was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Picture, but quote-unquote lost to Leonard Part 6. The reputation has improved in recent years. And much as with Heaven's Gate, which was kind of the previous standard bearer for a box office bomb, a lot of people appreciated that, even though it was a commercial failure, that it's not a complete artistic failure. Uh, The far side cartoonist Gary Larson actually apologized for a panel that he did called Hell's Video Store, where Ishtar is the only thing on the shelf, because he had not seen the film when he (laughs) wrote the comic. He saw it and was like, this isn't terrible. Interesting, like I was saying about Heaven's Gate, one of the derogatory labels attached to Ishtar pre-release was Warren's Gate. Uh, a reference <laughs> it's not that to, even clever. Not even clever. <laughs> which was a reference to Heaven's Gate, and when Waterworld went way over budget, it was labeled Fishtar. Just kind of paying it forward, literally paying it forward. Uh, there was a director's cut release on August 2013. It runs two minutes shorter. That's the version that we watch, or at least the version I watched. I doubt there's a very strong difference between the two versions well she had 108 hours to work with i mean the director's cut could have been a totally different movie it could have been a totally different netflix series they could have done that anchorman thing where they're just like we use different takes and every like (laughs) we just did a whole different movie out of it 
Quirky, as I was saying, the, uh, Ishtar was such a bomb and so notorious at the time that it was for decades synonymous with failure, specifically with out-of-touch Hollywood excess. However, as of course it does, it has a legion of sincere fans and defenders. So since this film was really put in movie prison decades ago, I'm, we're going to take a little page from the Films on Trial book. Okay, mm. We're going to take it. It's been condemned already. It's been sent to prison. It's been found guilty mm. decades ago. But you're on the movie parole board. Mm. And it's up for parole. So Corky, do you free Ishtar from its toxic reputation or... Are you going to sentence it to another 30 years I would, in movie prison? And in solidarity with Daniel, I just started eating my Snickers. <laughs> so I didn't want him to go through caramel mouthness alone. I would, I would sit Ishtar down right. in the parole board room sure. with my red-headed secretary to my right, with the sheriff who's looking... He, he's never trusting any con in his life to my left. And I would, I would look Ishtar dead in the eye. I would say, boy... Do you know what recidivism is? <laughs> and based upon the reply, right. I would say, well, guess what? You've been recidivized. Nice. And I would let Ishtar free. From, you would let it free. From bad reputation jail. Wow. Let me let me back way the fuck up. Sure. Two decades. Okay. No, oh, Jesus Christ. Four decades ago. Three decades? <laughs> three decades. Let me get three. <laughs> where a young Corky McDonald was sitting at home and asked his mom to bring Ishtar home from the video store. Wow. And I had heard it was a bomb, and it was just when I was really kind of understanding what that was. Mm -hmm. And I fucking loved the first 15 minutes of Ishtar right. as a kid. I was like, what is everybody talking yeah, about? fantastic. And for the four, mm -hmm. two, three decades since, I have railed against any time that it was brought up. I was like, first 15 minutes of that movie is fantastic. What happened fantastic. to the last 45 or 50? I stopped watching. That's how bad it got. Because <laughs> it gets so bad. It gets so goddamn bad. <laughs> So, but as an adult, when I rewatched uh -huh. it, I had an appreciation for some of the bits that I never did as a kid. And now I realize this first 25 minutes of the movie earned that for me. I semi agree with you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it parole. Sure. But it's going to have a strict probation. Uh, understood. It's it. I, I don't want this thing accessing the internet. Nope. <laughs> It has to register where it lives. I don't want this thing within a thousand feet of school. Right. Understood. <laughs> it's getting drug tested. Yes. Nonstop several times a day. Random spot checks at its job, at its place of employment. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh -huh. I'm not letting this thing out of my sight. No, I get you. No. It, I, I'll agree. I, I'll, I'll hold that the first 10 to 15 minutes. Not just, oh, this is actually pretty good. Pretty great. Pretty great. Pretty fantastic. If that it could somehow be fashioned into a 15 to 20 minute short movie, we might be talking about something amazing. However, I still have to go with my younger self. I also saw this on cable 30 years ago, thought this starts really funny and then gets really not funny and then gets severely not funny. Yeah. I've got to agree with my 12 year old self on that one. Like the, it, it gets forced and, and labored mm -hmm. really fast. After the first 10 or 15 minutes. 25. Mm, I watched the time this time. I'm not. I can't go there with you. Can't quite go there if with the you. Movie was not, if the movie was just called New York City and they never went to Ishtar. Sure. Great movie. And exactly. Keep it there. That was the funny. Exactly. Great You've got a great concept around Hoffman and Beatty as these ridiculous, completely unself-aware, untalented songwriters. Yes. And then you just throw it in a milieu that has nothing to do with anything, and it completely falls apart. 
And there are occasional laughs after that opening minute, but to use a symbol from the movie, it is like finding beads in the sand <laughs> of an otherwise barren desert. <laughs> like it, it I, there's a solid hour of this. Yes. That is bad. Hard to watch. Really bad. And it's hard for me to recommend a 98-minute movie where one full hour of it is almost unwatchable. I okay, so I will disagree, and I'll, I will say that I think there was a laugh every five minutes in this movie. So I can't say that a full hour was bad. However, if you're using a metaphor from the movie, right. I think the movie might have stuck with you a little more than you're letting on. Even if it's just beads in the desert, which nobody <laughs> else would get, if that stuck with you. All right, so. The first laughs come while the opening credits are happening. And actually, I think the biggest laugh and the funniest thing that happens in the entire movie happens before we ever see any images. And the real star of this film that we, we should say, the all-star, I think, okay. is Paul Williams. Yeah, the songwriter. Paul Williams, who <laughs> the songwriter who intentionally wrote these astoundingly bad songs, yeah. most of which we only hear in a little shard or something like that. But then also... Did you call it a shart? Shart. <laughs> a little shart. <laughs> It's a shard of a song, which is kind of apt. <laughs> it is a shard of a it's song. It's meant to be a nice thing, but it squeaks out this really awful thing. Yeah, and apparently... Wait, hold uh, on. In that metaphor, I just meant that a fart was meant to be a nice thing. <laughs> That's not what I meant to say. But you, In the context of this movie. We got a whole movie to get through. I'm sorry. But apparently, Elaine May wanted a whole system where Paul Williams would write the song and then teach the song to Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty, which made everything take so much longer because now you have to go through this whole process of teaching non-musicians a yeah. song. They can both play piano a little bit, and you see them both in the movie playing a little, yeah. mm -hmm. but neither of them are musicians in no. any way. Some of the Paul Williams lyrics that we get are like, <laughs> telling the truth is a bitter herb. <laughs> no, but what I love, my favorite part is, as you just hear it, they're kind of working through some kind of song. Yeah. And then the first line is, telling the truth. Telling the truth is bad news. <laughs> telling the truth is bad news. And then suddenly it's, telling the truth is good news. <laughs> like it just remembers, like, it's a song about telling the truth that has no truth yeah. to the point they don't know if truth is good or bad. You know right away these are inept songs. They have no freaking clue. And the song is just amazing. Telling the truth is a dangerous business <laughs> is how it finally lands. <laughs> Honesty and popular don't go hand in hand. Ugh. If you tell people you can play the accordion, no one will hire you for a rock and roll band. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just absolutely brutal. So this is Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman as the songwriting duo of Rogers and Clark. Yeah, Lyle they, Rogers, Chuck Clark. You can see that they have a lot of ambition, but no talent at all. They're, in a, they're looking in a record store window at Simon and Garfunkel's album and Warren Beatty, who is Lyle Rogers. Yes. He says that we're, dangerous business is better than anything they ever wrote. <laughs> and you come to find out Lyle Rogers is a kind of dim-witted dim -witted Midwestern guy. Chuck Clark is the huckster New York City slick guy. Yeah. Warren Beatty has an accent for 55% of this film's That's running right. time. Yeah. It go, comes and goes so hard. It is just, I mean, this is where you can see that this movie was, there's so much improvisation and reshooting and let's do this and let's do that. Because sometimes he just sounds like Warren Beatty and then sometimes he lays it on real thick. Yeah, oh, he's got a deep draw. Oh my God, yeah. So they are, the songwriting duo, they contact agent Jack Weston. Jack Weston, baby. Who tells them, Relax, boogie. Can't stop the music. Episode because twelve. That's what he says. 
and they want him to catch them play at the Song Mart. Right. The Song Mart. Uh, they play their song, Dangerous Business. Uh, he tells them, you're old, you're white, you've got no shtick. And when I heard that, I'm like, shout out? You talking about us? <laughs> I know, old right? white dudes with no nothing going on? <laughs> Come on. Dare Daniel Podcast. You're shouting us out. Boogie. <laughs> So he tells them they should sing other people's material. Do what Tony Bennett does. Yeah. And so they sing a really atrocious version of Little Darlin'. Yeah. Oh, my God. But see, that's the thing about this movie. It's, it, these bits lead into the next bit, and yeah. it's really funny. It is really funny. The next time you see him, they got Karate Kid bandanas on. Yeah. I, mean, I think Hoffman steals the show in this part. So funny. And the, kind of the joke of the movie, the kind of not really that funny joke of the movie, is that Dustin Hoffman is supposed to be the slick one with women, and Warren Beatty is big and dumb and bad with women. Sure. It's not very funny <laughs> in and of itself. And I will say that you're right. Dustin Hoffman is just more comfortable doing this kind of ca- character stuff. Warren Beatty seems really ill at ease in this movie. So Agent Jack Weston uh, gives them a couple of offers. He can send them to Honduras. <laughs> or he can send them to Ishtar in Morocco. And they both are very disappointed with these uh, bookings. And they go to a bar. Well, essentially, Dustin Hoffman goes to a bar, and Lyle just follows him like a little sad puppy dog. (laughs) Like, he has no idea what to do. Uh, And this starts a flashback to how they mix. They say, we've only known each other for the last five months. So we flashback. Warren Beatty is, or Lyle, is an ice cream man singing a song called Hot Fudge Love that he has made up (laughs) and singing it for his girlfriend. I thought this was kind of a weird storytelling device to have a montage to set up your movie. The first 10, 12 minutes of your movie is a montage. Then and it then fades a into a flashback montage. Yeah. I thought that was kind of weird. I thought it was too. It was really, I mean, it works for me. Uh, Hoffman is also another aspiring songwriter in this flashback. He's playing this really crappy joint where the waiters are constantly bumping into him. His reactions to the waiters jostling his equipment and stuff was my favorite part of this movie. Good stuff. Oh, it's so, we talked about one time someone described Charles Grodin and Clifford being a slow burn. And like, right. you don't know what a slow burn is. That's a slow burn. <laughs> yes. What Hoffman's doing in this scene is slow burn. Absolutely. So he sings a song for an old married couple that is coming in for their 53rd ending anniversary called Leaving Some Love in My Will. That is just the most pandering song of all time. And it's basically like, I'm, you're going to die soon, yeah. but I love you. This always makes me wonder about the actors who are cast as the old people receiving the you're going to die soon joke. It's like they're literally facing their own mortality. They might not see the opening of this movie. One person does like the performance, yes. and that's Lyle. Lyle is there watching it. He likes the song, and they two they connect right away. They right just away. start banging things out. On uh, you know, a waiter comes over and tells him he's got a half hour to leave, and they instantly start making a, a terrible song out of having a half hour. Yeah, and they have these uh, put upon significant others. Yeah, Lyle's wife and who doesn't have a word in Chuck's the movie. Girlfriend. Yeah, Carol Kane is play plays Chuck's girlfriend. Yeah, and her name is Carol, and. <laughs> But these two instantly become energized by each other. We get this other montage of them just running through all these different kinds of songs, one of which is called, Gonna Change Her Name to Carol. (laughs) (laughs) But it's all these songs and just really inane chatter. And then finally, Lyle's wife leaves him. But there's some great bits in there, like, because Dustin Hoffman tells him that his nickname is Hawk. Yes. And and how did you get the name? You know, gang wars, shit like that. (laughs) He's so full of shit. Seriously. But then there's also really labored stuff like the smuck schmuck. Mm. It just, again, feels so forced. And it starts to feel forced 
right around the time that Hoffman's girlfriend leaves him. And he goes out on a ledge, which at first is very funny because he calls Lyle and says, I'm out on a ledge, but he's really just sitting in his window. Yes. And then starts writing a song about being on a ledge. That, see, you cut back to him and now he's got his hat on and he's singing a song about me. And it's like so true to the character that you know it's right perfect. now. It's yeah. perfect. Then it gets into the very forced hijinks. And this is where really to me, even before we leave New York City, it starts to feel like we're really forcing the action here. The police show up and yeah. he really does run out on the ledge. Then Beatty comes out and he gets out on the ledge, and now we're doing all ledge hijinks. You know, just classic ledge hijinks. Yeah, I guess classic ledge hijinks. <laughs> Seriously, it does. There's nothing really original. It just feels his very rabbi flat shows about up, this. his mom shows up, exactly. But we find out also that he's been living a lie. He's not really this cool, confident man. He's lived with his parents to lose thirty-two. And I think this is the moment you have together. And then they cut back to the bar and they says, let's take the show on the road. So, boom, we're going to what the Chiron says, Ishtar, near the Moroccan border. We find somebody. So, let me, let me, is Ishtar a real place? It's not, right? I don't think so. Ishtar is like a, I mean, I don't really know, but I know it's a goddess. Ishtar is a goddess. Oh, okay. See, I thought Ishtar was a made up place that kind of got him around insulting anybody right but then they they mention all real p- people and places for the rest of the movie exactly they mentioned cia involved they talk about Gaddafi, yeah, lebanon and and the Morocco. assassination of anwar Sadat. right but uh when they're flying over the uh, middle east stewardess on the plane she says you are now descending into ishtar and i was like that is such an apt description for this movie yeah because now we are descending we into the We're plummet really of the movie. getting into it right now so an archaeologist, I don't know if they are an archaeologist. Somebody finds a map. Right. Someone who eventually we find out is part of some sort of resistance yeah. fight. They find a map. On the map, there's the prophecy of two messengers who are going to come to Ishtar, which we are told is on the brink of revolution. Yeah. I should really emphasize, we are told all of these things. Mm-hmm. All of these key story points that are going to come up now we kind of just have to assume them because we only are ever told about them. You're right. We're told that the Emir of Ishtar is abusive to everyone. We're told that these guys, I guess, are the two messengers. Why? No idea. Right. Why does anyone mistake them as the two messengers? The only reason we f- should know that is because they, the archaeologists reference two messengers, and then it cuts back to them on the plane. That's the, that's the lead right there. That's it. There's no other reason. Ishtar being on, quote, the brink of revolution and being key to, again, we're just told we're all just of told. this stuff. Again and again and, and again. again and again, and it gets really tiresome. But anyway, we're still having a little bit of fun. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the guy who finds the map calls up, uh, who is his sister, which is who is played by Isabella Johnny. He gets stabbed. And uh, he finds he says that he's hid the map somewhere, essentially. And she knows about it. So Chuck and Lyle land in the Ishtar airport. Uh, Lyle goes off to do something. Chuck gets approached by Isabella Johnny, who now is posing as a boy. Right. She's posing as a man. She's she undercover. Has... She's, she's a wanted fugitive in, or wanted as a terrorist in this country. Yeah. And she approaches him and immediately just says, like, Let's switch suitcases, give me your passport, and let's switch jackets. And tells him that essentially there's abuses happening or something, she's going to get killed or something like that. She just makes up a story, and he immediately does it. Yeah, and this is – I'm one thing I remember it as a kid was that they both realized Isabella Johnny is a woman because of her breasts. Right. This one, she just flashes her boobs. She just flashes In the middle hooter. of this airport <laughs> just because he thinks that she's a guy trying to hustle him. <laughs> and it's like – 
<laughs> but he has a great reaction line, which is, look at what you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But he immediately agrees to switch identities, again, kind of just for no reason, just because yeah. she, she tells him to. But this is why I started going, okay, this movie's just not well made, because all the fun stuff that we had, now we get lines like, you look like a man who loves adventure. That's how we introduce these two characters. Exactly. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. So he pretends that he's lost his passport. They go to the American embassy. They can't help him. Lyle is, goes on to Marrakesh to play the gig at the Shea Casablanca. <laughs> Where while Hawk has to go back to the hotel for some reason, yeah. Why did the American? Why why was he even allowed to leave the American embassy without a Because otherwise, the movie's over. And at the hotel, he gets approached by Charles Grodin. Yep, who's playing Jim Williams, not Jim's, the Jim uncle Harrison. from Clifford. <laughs> yeah, not the uncle from Clifford. <laughs> Episode eighteen. Check it out. But there is a funny bit where where. They introduce Lyle on stage at the Casablanca, the club he's playing at, or the hotel he's playing at, when they're now from the duo of Rogers and Clark, Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I like these kind of bits. Yes. And it's initially very awkward because he's trying to play Bridge Over Troubled Water and the crowd is screaming out for him to play That's Amore yeah. or Strangers in the Night. Because he said, name what you want to hear, I'll just play them. And he plays nothing of the dozen or so songs they're shouting at Because he was also told to play Simon and Garfield. It's like how dumb he is. But Clark, Chuck, shows up all of a sudden and kind of rescues the show and he starts playing that's amore and, yeah. and suddenly the show is rescued the crowd and loves it crowd loves it and they're all like american expatriates who, yeah. who are just hungry for any kind of western entertainment sure just play that's amore a stranger in the night but eventually because it goes to another montage where they just keep cutting in between the songs that they're doing and there's a great cut to one where now dustin hoffman is sitting on a, a stool with a jacket draped over like cocked on one finger over his shoulder <laughs> holding the microphone and just singing while lyle's playing the piano they they have they go off stage just like to five feet off the stage and have a little conversation and the crowd's like encore, encore. <laughs> and they just walk right back up onto the stage and do their encore. There's also one of the the best bits in this movie are just complete throwaway half second little yes. gestures and things like that. But there's one amazing one on screen where I, th- I think it, Hoffman has the microphone and he, there's like an ooh ooh part in the middle and he like holds it out to Beatty but Beatty is slow getting it and he's pulled it back and then Beatty leads out. Oh it's still like, yes, they're just. I mean, it's beautifully timed. Them doing the songwriting shit is the only parts of this movie where I'm like, fuck yes, exactly. And this is pretty much where we get away from it for the next hour to seventy minutes or something like that. So this is the end. But we find out that uh, it was Charles Grodin, the CIA agent, who was able to get Chuck to Marrakesh so fast by making a deal. In the morning, uh, Chuck is out somewhere, Lyle is in the hotel, and Shira comes to get her suitcase. Breaks in. Which supposedly has the map in it. She breaks in and is tackled by Lyle, who thinks she's a boy well after she reveals she's a girl, until he actually has hold of her actual breasts. I thought this was funny, though, because he's like, your voice isn't changed, you're not shaving. Look at you, you look. You, you can't be more than 15. He's so dim-witted. And then it's funny when she reveals she's a man or a woman, and then she tells him that uh, Chuck is a member of the CIA or working with the CIA. He's like, all right, now first you're a man, now you're a woman, now you're telling me. I uh, love that kind of shit. Yeah. But this is where we start this series of misunderstandings. She thinks that Chuck is a CIA agent. Yeah. 
But because Shira goes into the hotel room and is, quote, out of breath when she leaves, they think that she's having a sexual relationship with Lyle, which is hilarious because Lyle's awkward with women. And they think that Lyle is now a left-wing terrorist agent as well. And it also plays on Chuck Clark's thing. He thinks he's a womanizer. He thinks he's hot with women. But now he thinks his partner has scored with the woman that he wanted. Mm Mm-hmm. So they both are into Shira, and they both think the other one is an agent for the other side. And this gets explained again and again. And when Charles Grodin goes to meet the Emir of Ishtar, he has to explain it to him. He has to explain it to his own agents. They have to explain it to each other. I mean, it's just... The rest of this movie is Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman doing a hijink. And then the next scene is somebody explaining everything that set up that scene and the next scene. And then it cuts, goes back to Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty doing a hijink. And everything is revolved around this map that mm-hmm. they supposedly have, which we're told could, quote, destabilize the Middle East. Why would a map destabilize the Middle East? We have no idea. We're nope. just left to assume. Everyone also seems to think that these two dopes are the two messengers from God. Why do they think that? No idea. And it really doesn't matter or come up at all. So after these endless expository scenes, she tells Lyle to go buy a blind camel. Yeah. Shira tells Lyle to go buy a blind camel. Ask for a guy named Muhammad Uh and ask him if he can buy a blind camel. Yeah. Meanwhile, they're in this marketplace and agents are following them everywhere and not being very very subtle about what they're doing. You have agents dressed like uh, Will Ferrell and Austin Powers with the suit and the fez. Beggars. Yeah, beggars. They all get up and follow like five feet behind. (laughs) Cars crash into each other as he's walking down the street. I thought it was a funny bit. It was a funny bit. And it's got good character action. Matt Frewer is one of the CIA agents. He's good. Yeah, and he's kind of pointing out, like, the American agents are the ones wearing the fez. The ones in the tropical shirts are the Russians. The ones in In the the Arab garbs are the uh, Russian agents and so on and so forth. This starts a shootout in the market. (laughs) And this is where, like, Elaine May is not – this is not really her wheelhouse. Action scenes, chase scenes, because it is just completely chaotic, the mise-en-scene, how everything cuts together and how it's all framed. It just makes no sense at all. And apparently there was a big clash between her, who she's – like I said, her background is improv comedy, and it's kind of try to emphasize the funny of the scene. And Vittorio Storaro, who's the cinematographer of Reds, and Last Emperor and all these Bernardo Bertolucci movies. Renowned and his, comedies. <laughs> exactly. He's He wants the powerful image. He mm-hmm. wants a beautiful image. And you can kind of see it because occasionally in this chasing, they'll be like kind of a, wow, that was a really neat shot. Yeah. Interspersed with just all just junk running you've in got all a, directions. a rooftop shot of them escaping going on in the same scene as you've got all the agents bumbling. But the agents are bumbling on such a fucking ridiculous Keystone Cops way. Yeah, it, it really just, undercuts it, it. It doesn't really fit together at mm-hmm. all. So it, all the cool shots are really undermined um, and none of the funny really lands nope. either. But this starts a big shootout. The music goes crazy in the scene as I well. loved it. I'm sorry. What, what I loved about the music in this part was that when it shows the agents is playing this Middle Eastern Moroccan music, and then when it cuts to Chuck and Lyle, it's playing telling the truth is a dangerous business, but done in Middle Eastern <laughs> right. style. I love that. Fair enough. Fair enough. So they do escape. They go to buy a blind. He does go to buy a blind camel. Shira. That was a funny bit too. When he just walks into the, all these camel traders and he goes, uh, Muhammad. And then tw- eight guys pop yes. up and he just picks one and is like, <laughs> well, wow, I found you first shot. Yeah. Uh, but Shira, her ability to just show up and 
anywhere on any dot yes. at any time at any place whenever you need her is just astounding because she, she just is, shows up again. She's Daisy in Revolution. <laughs> she absolutely is. She shows up again. We we just basically rehash all of the misunderstandings that are going on. And Charles Grodin delivers dialogue to the Amir of Ishtar like these are the Kalashnikovs we sold you. It's like all right, okay, we get it. Yeah, they're tied in. They're doing bad shit. He's trying to cover it up. Yeah, but that's such hammy or forced dialogue to it, do. It's really forced. And Charles Grodin, although I, I think he's good here, he is. He's he's the one who has to do a lot of that lifting. Yeah, of, let me explain this over and over and over again to the Emir. Let me explain it to Dustin Hoffman. Let me explain it to my own guys. There are a handful of scenes where Charles Grodin or Elizabeth Johnny just answer a phone call and they start talking. And you're like, they came back months later. And to we're do like, this. we got nothing here. No yeah. one knows why this is happening. <laughs> there is a funny line where Hoffman asks, you know, why he bought the camel, and he says, "I didn't buy him. They sold him to me." <laughs> Um, but this also starts a lot of what I thought were kind of particularly unfunny blind camel oh, the blind slapstick camel, yeah. hijinks. That's just it's it's deadly dull. I I was really feeling like oh wow this is really funny and, and ahead of its time and then like oh there's these outdated fifties bits yeah with a blind camel just being hilarious yeah and it's just not it's not funny at all and and the same kind of joke happens over and over again where someone will say what is that camel blind and they'll be like he is yeah there's even a label bird move the camel great move the camel what does that mean move the camel off my foot yeah. that's like that's like fucking so musty that's the 1940s so, you know what i mean so moldy so both groden groden essentially both groden and shira send their contacts which respectively are chuck and lyle into the desert just to get rid of them essentially mm-hmm Immediately, this just starts a really, what I thought was by far the worst period of the movie, which is just them fucking around in the desert. Yeah, that it is. It immediately starts with them, like, crawling around on the desert and vultures circling around. Yeah. We're not dead yet, vultures. And then he says, like, what is this, paradise? And then, what are those vultures? Ah, it's just supposed to be so funny that they're vultures. If the descent into Ishtar was a metaphor, this is an it, a metaphor because it's bereft of laughs. It's bereft of entertainment. It's a desert of a movie. It's just the two of them point. out in the middle of the desert goofing off. But they got a blind camel with them. And a blind camel. So they're going in circles and stuff like that. They at one point realize that they've missed their show and they start bickering and, again, re- just relaying story points to each but other. But this is the first time they reveal to each other that what they've been suspecting of each other. Like that Again, the hijinks, Transylvania style. We're, we're only acting because we think each other's doing something different. Right. And this is where I wrote my notes. Wasn't this film about songwriters from New York City? Because like, <laughs> this is where it really starts to hurt. And you're like, why did we ever leave that? Yeah. Like this movie has just like fallen off a cliff. That's like the second they got on the plane to Ishtar. It, it's just like like you really are just like that. This was a bad idea. Yeah, this was a bad idea. You had the seed of the idea, and it grew into like a mutant fucking oak tree. My notes at this point are just line after line of now. It, now a Johnny resets the plot. Now mm-hmm. Groden resets the plot. Now they explain the plot to each other a little bit, mm-hmm. and then they finally come up upon this. They get lost in a sandstorm, and they come upon this convoy, and they get spotted. Um, and Hoffman is forced to pose as the auctioneer. Yeah. And essentially what's happening is these gun runners have come out in the middle of the desert and all of the kind of various people from all the different cultures. There's all sorts of different tribes and dialects out here. And they've all come together to buy guns. And 
but they all speak different dialects, so the and auctioneers can't communicate with there's them. There's a really subtle blue face joke in here because the dye from the kafir that Lyle has bought starts to stain his face so he can pass now as one of the Middle Easterns <laughs> if he wraps up <laughs> with the blue dye. So <laughs> uh, yeah, this scene is not funny at all. No. This is really bad. And it's just a lot of like Hoffman screaming like, Pigeon Arab, I yeah, guess. trying Just to like, sound la, 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 blah, 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 blah. He's saying things that are supposed to sound like they'd be like, Hots for you, got hots for you, yeah. And then Lyle will parrot it back to say, like, Oh, I understand him when nobody else understands him, yeah. So Lyle kind of gets everybody to kind of think that this is actually working. Uh, the CIA kind of comes up on it and disperses the whole scene, mm-hmm. um, but then. <laughs> Abandons them like right away in a very like very fake looking. There, there's shot. a few helicopter uh, shots on here where <laughs> the guy is in the helicopter. Go, they've spotted us, and then it cuts to Beatty and Hoffman, and the helicopter's like right above them. Know, the right? wind is blowing the <laughs> desert sand around, and he's like, "Oh, they spotted us." <laughs> yeah, your stealth activities. <laughs> and at this point, Warren Beatty delivers the line. Yeah, I want to go home. And you really like feel it. They just, mm-hmm. this whole sequence is just so, just comedy death. As they're crawling through the desert, they're still writing their shit songs and talking about how great this stuff that they're capturing is. Yeah. That I thought that was, I was like, oh, good, please, the songwriting stuff, do that. Right. More. Like, get back into it, please. But instead, the helicopter comes back again. With now, this time with the intent to kill, because at first they came just basically to make sure they were dead and they thought that since. They had stopped, that they were dead, but instead they were at this convoy selling guns. Yeah. So now they come back with guns, but uh, Warren Beatty and Beatty and Hoffman are able to evade them and shoot back at them, and the helicopter takes off again. Oh, yeah, but they've been joined by uh, Isabella Johnny and their weed-smoking guide. They come back, but then go again, and then come back again with a gunship. And they shoot at them both times? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I think so. I didn't think they shot at him the first time because they th- the helicopter shoots at at Lyle and and Chuck, but they don't shoot back at them. Uh, Maybe, dude, I might have stopped no, paying attention. Yeah, no, they they shoot back. They're able to evade it, and then they find a gun or something like that. And they're able to shoot. They're able to do something. I think I started listening to Paul Williams songs at this time. <laughs> I was just like, God, save me. So yeah, they do return with a, a gunship, and they're, they're they're ready to fight. And suddenly, because she can just show up any like, how did she even find them? Shira just shows up in the middle of the desert, it's, and so does their weed smoking guy. So it's does so their guide, fucking funny. and they are armed to the teeth. So they start firing rockets at these copters now, <laughs> and now the copters are like, now they're seriously going to hurt us. Now we're going to leave for the, the, the third time. <laughs> we're leaving again. It's just like, what the fuck is even happening? And and they're reporting back to Charles Gordon, who's in some CIA. Uh, it's really just some studio some <laughs> with tape behind him. And he's like acknowledging that he's trying to kill Americans, right. acknowledging that they've sold uh, weapons. And he's just telling the board, I'm like, this is not a good CIA <laughs> this is operative. Not great stuff, guys. So they the helicopters take off and the CIA essentially says, we need to cover it up in some sort of a yep. different way. Now, after... <sighs> 45 minutes of just fucking around in the desert. This movie is suddenly like, oh no, there's a lot of urgency. And it it rockets towards the ending yep. from here. It, it suddenly is like hasty as fuck. So the map was sent to relax, boogie, Jack Weston. <laughs> he makes a deal with the CIA 
Shira is going to be in charge, essentially in charge of the country. She's going to be in charge of, of human atrocities or, or stopping atro- the, the civil rights abuses that are going on in Ishtar, okay. which means they're going to have to overthrow the emir of Ishtar. They also need to produce a live album for Rogers and Clark <laughs> Which and is promote the real it as well. sin to the CIA. Man. Exactly. Yeah, that's the real tough one. So they fill the Sheikh Casablanca with CIA agents and soldiers, and Lyle and uh, Rogers and Clark go through their entire catalog and they give a whole concert where we hear just these five to 10 second snippets of songs. Yeah. Including some of the songs we've heard, some new ones. And it ends with a song that they wrote for Shira, who is in the audience. Yeah. And she starts crying during the song and uh, relax boogie Jack Weston asks, you know, what's wrong? And she just says, I think they're wonderful. And that's it. Yeah. End of the movie. Like, and then, are and we really supposed to think they're wonderful? The last, and why does she think that? The last image is that New York... Record it's the record store, store with their album in it, although it Next says to Peter like, Gabriel and Talking Heads. It and, says reduced price or something. Oh, like I that. didn't notice yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> but it's there. It's in the window that they were looking in before, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Anytime that it is about them as songwriters, like I was totally on board with this movie, but unfortunately, when you add it up, that's like twenty minutes of the film when you add it up all together. Yeah. And a lot of it is, I think, really unfunny. And as much as I love a rehabilitation case. I love a lost cause. I love taking that wounded bird, especially one that's been neglected by the previous generation and rehabbing it and watching it fly and all that kind of Sure. Can't get it. I just can't. It's not the first time I've thought of you as the Birdman of Alcatraz. Thank you. Thank you. You'd look just like him. You behave (laughs) just like him. But I think if we really adhere to the words of Lyle Rogers and Chuck Clark when we say... Life is the way we audition for God. Let us all pray we get the job. I would like to say that this movie auditioned for us the parole board, and they got the job. Ah, all right. They got the walk on this. Fair enough. The the songwriting bits are the bits. They really are pretty inspired. The rest of the movie is a it's it's like a, a train slamming on the brake mm-hmm. and screeching to a grinding halt. Yeah. So much so that the train might dis- derail. You yeah. know what I mean? Which it does, but anything that's songwriting redeems the part that it's in. I agree. I I, I agree, but I just I didn't think it was enough for me personally. What really struck me again at the end of the movie, as we come back to essentially the beginning and to them doing their songs again, like that's the end of the film, right? Yeah, it kind of recycles back. What really struck me was that there's no journey of the characters. No. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And if you look at Elaine May's films, like that is kind of a thing. I think she's interested in in people who don't change or people who are intractable. And if you look at a movie like A New Leaf or The Heartbreak Kid, it's about people who don't actually change. Sure. But they go on a journey. <laughs> There's a journey to not changing. Sure. You know? yeah. There's no journey here with the characters. You have essentially this cocktail uh, napkin sketch idea of Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are untalented and ambitious songwriting duo. Yeah. And that's that's as far as it ever gets. Here, here's the other thing I will say: we grew up when this was known as the the bomb of bombs. Yeah, right. This was known for being the sh- Heaven's Gate was much more critically panned and actually bankrupted a studio. Yeah, but that was like film critics know that as a bomb. Sure, this was the popular conscience. Right. knows this as a bomb. And like a, Part a lot of, of me bombs, wanting to rehab it is sure. because I want to redeem like. No, give it its shot on its own merit. Absolutely. The, the, the background you explained at the beginning, this movie was doomed from before it, it got Never released. had a chance. Exactly. Give it a fair shot off after watching. Yeah, it. I agree. And like I say, I don't think it's un, 
unwatchable film, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of good stuff interspersed with even in even a lot of great stuff. There is some really great stuff yeah. in there, and some good stuff, and some really really awful. <laughs> yes, stuff there is. There's a lot well. of stuff. So, and like Heaven's Gate, I think this film's reputation when it was released, and like a lot of films, it got filtered through its bankability mm-hmm. and its budget and how much it earned. Good point. And I hate when critics Good point. make that a focal point because unless you got some goddamn skin in the game, yeah, I don't own fucking Columbia Pictures, do you? Right. Unless you're making money off of this thing, what do you care? What do you care? It, the ticket price costs the same. It yeah. doesn't really matter what the budget is or what it grosses. So, yeah, it was unfairly trashed and thrown away. Again, I'm going to go with a dare. Sure. A high dare. Sure. A borderline reverse dare. But I cannot go full reverse dare because, again, there's just too much of this movie that is hard to sit through. Well, uh, I'm stamping these parole papers. You're going reverse reverse dare. dare. And I'm recommending to its employer to give it a shot. (laughs) I will come in and drug test and spot check. But, yeah, reverse dare. Watch this movie. Go in knowing that there is a lot of great funny bits. There are bits that you can see that try to work that don't work. And uh, there are bits that do pay off. Even I, I, I think there are some bits that pay off in the middle. But know that there's some bogged down shit in this movie. And it's it's not a well-written movie. It's a well-put-together series of improv- improvisations. Mm. But it's not a well-written movie. No. No, it isn't. It's extremely disjointed. And all of the clashing stories and how much everything needs to be explained is really emblematic of that, I think. I would just say stick with Elaine May's 70s work. I've never seen I, – I know Elaine May. I, I know her comedy. I know her more as a performer in the old Nichols and May shit, you know, the comedy yeah. the albums and stuff. I have never seen Heartbreak Kid. I've never seen uh, – See A New Leaf. Walter Matthau as a dandy. Amazing <laughs> casting against type. That's great. She loves casting against type, as obvious with Warren Beatty in this movie. Absolutely. And yeah. she stars in it as well. So it's a really great introduction to her work. Was Isabella Johnny – did you think she that she was trying to do Elaine May or that she was cast as the Elaine May, the kind of like – I feel like that was the character they had no idea what, what to do with at all. Right. Just no, no idea at all. And apparently Elaine May – for whatever reason, hated Isabella Johnny. She was really kind of mean to her. Apparently. Ah, okay. Uh, and like wouldn't show up during recording sessions. Where holy Elaine, fuck! Yeah. Oh, I wonder what was up to that with that. I don't know. You got to ask Elaine May. She's still alive. Ask her. <laughs> I'll text her. <laughs> That's all we have for you on this episode of Dare Daniel. But we'll be back in two weeks to review another one of your movie dares. In the meantime, check out our Tuesday mini episode for a preview of the next. Dare Daniel Review, as well as more talk about your dares and movies in general. Until then, send your most sadistic or altruistic movie dares to us at daredaniel.com and be sure to follow Dare Daniel Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Horky! Yes, man! Where can people find you working through some of your new songs? Oh, God, you can find me at the Sacramento Comedy Spot when I'm not performing at the Casablanca Lounge and Hotel. Shake Casablanca. The shake, the shake. See, that's great. Shake Casablanca. Uh, Yeah. Catch me Fridays and Saturdays. I'll be performing with my group, Anti-Cooperation League. For Dear Daniel, I'm Daniel Barnes. Our producer is Johnny Shartar Flores. And I'm Corky McDonald saying, telling the truth is a dangerous business. It's a bitter herb. (laughs) We love you.